Welcome to another episode of Team Anywhere, where CEOs, leaders, and experts at building teams, companies, organizations, and amazing cultures share how to lead from anywhere in the world. I'm your co-host on the East Coast, Judy Bianco Mathis. And I'm your co-host on the West Coast, Mitch Simon. And we invite you to join us to Team Anywhere. Let's face it, we are all not the greatest mind readers. It prevents us from forming great relationships, great teams, and it stifles great collaboration. Thank God that Deb Mashik, a close relationship researcher, wrote Collaborate, where she teaches us how to turn me work into we work. Hello and welcome to another episode of Team Anywhere. I'm your co-host, Mitch Simon, on the West Coast where it is a glorious, glorious day, as it is always on the West Coast. And we have on the East Coast, our incredible, glamorous, wise co-host, Dr. Virginia Bianco Mathis. Ginny, how are you today? Well, I'm great. But you know, I'm beginning not to appreciate this West Coast snobbery. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are snobs and we love it. And so, okay, but we have a guest who is not a snob and not on the West Coast. Who's our guest today, Ginny? Oh, boy, are we special today. Today we have social psychologist Deb Mashek, and she helps business leaders navigate the relationship headwinds that tank timelines and bottom lines and overall well-being. She's an experienced business advisor, professor, and nonprofit executive, and her writing appears in MIT Sloan Management Review, Fortune, The Heckinger Report, Psychology Today. And Deb has been an invited speaker on collaboration and viewpoint diversity at leading organizations, including the United Nations and the American Psychological Association, and she's the author of a wonderful new book that we're going to get into today, Collaborate. Welcome, Deb. Mitch and Jenny, it is such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And I should say, I grew up in the Midwest and spent 14 years on the West Coast, and I've been out here on the East Coast for five years. So I'll be our mediary balancer. Oh, this sounds yeah. good. Yes, yeah. this sounds yeah, well, great. If, you're, if you've been from the Midwest, you're definitely not a snob. Yes, that's true. That is true. Yeah, that people is- are so nice out there. Yeah. All right. Well, Deb, give us a little bit about your background. Where are you from? And how did you get into then the topic that you love in, in terms of collaboration? Oh, there's so many backstories that we could go into, and I don't want to take up our whole time on this, but I start the book by saying that the trailer park, my parents' alcoholism, and my PhD, that these were my three great teachers of collaboration. And just to very briefly hit on a couple of those things, I grew up as a free-range child in a trailer park where the only two rules were you don't leave the chain link fence. And if anybody was seriously hurt, then you go and you get an adult. But other than that, the kids were outside figuring out how to play, what to play, what the rules were, how to enforce it when, you know, there was some jerk who wasn't following the rules and how to, you know, get them back in line, but not in a mean way, such that they would actually come out and play again tomorrow. And so that was the trailer park. And then on the parents' alcoholism thing, as, you know, kids who grow up amid addiction often experience that the adults are not particularly great at adulting sometimes. And so I 
not intentionally, but I learned pretty early on that I could turn to the relationships with other adults in my life to get my needs met. And so you learned how to be of interest to them, learned how to read the room about where the eggshells were, things like that. So that certainly helped. And then through the grace of God and the help of some amazing teachers in high school and actually in college too, made my way off to graduate school. It was my very first semester and I happened to get to take a psychology of close relationships class. And I was the dork who read every single page of the assigned reading, who came to every class with my hand raised high, wanting to ask all the follow-up questions and absolutely fell in love with it. And that's what I've been doing ever since and finding ways of applying that psychology of close relationships to the real world, including obviously to this idea of workplace relationships and collaboration. And how can we make this whole working together thing less painful and more productive? Oh, wow. That's beautiful. And I love the learnings you got out of those experiences because we also know that someone else could have gone through those same experiences and not come out as insightful as you did. So that that's fabulous. Well, congratulations on the new book. And I love how one of your reviewers said you're like the relationship psychologist in your pocket. Why do you write this book? What do you want people to take from it? So there are so many fantastic books out there already about collaboration. It's like, why the heck do we need another one? And my thinking on it is because of my background as a psychologist focused on relationships, what I bring to it is a particular lens where a lot of the books that are out there talk about the processes of collaboration or the tools of collaboration. Super, super important, but people are collaborating. The tools themselves are not the things doing the collaboration. So if you want to improve collaboration, you need to improve the relationships among the people doing the collaboration. And so I like to say, you know, if you don't focus on the relationships, you're trying to cook without salt when it comes to building collaboration. And so what I want people to get out of it, first of all, as you mentioned, the book is titled Collaborate, and that H is kind of a, a quiet little wink in the title, trying to give voice to the fact that collaboration is really freaking hard because people are involved <laughs> and people are difficult. And so there's a lot of cultural rah-rah enthusiasm as though, you know, collaboration is the best thing since sliced bread, that it's, you know, some combination of the bee's knees, the best solution for every possible problem. And I mean, it might be true, but if we don't also talk about why it's hard and how it goes off the rails, we're doing a huge disservice to all of the people out there who are stuck in these workplace environments where they're, you know, told to like, go collaborate. And it's, it gets very hand wavy. It's like, I don't know, just go work together without actually equipping them with the skill sets, the mindsets, the talents, the tools and resources to actually be able to do that well. So I wrote the book, hoping to make this whole playing nice with others thing less painful, and more productive. Fabulous. I love also, you use a phrase in your book that collaboration can sometimes go sideways. Sometimes. Yeah. So what does a team who collaborates look like? Yeah. So a team that's collaborating well, you see people who, first of all, like to be together. They enjoy each other's presence. They view each other as competent. 
they see that what they're able to do together is more magnificent, more nuanced, more creative than what any of them could have done alone. So there's already an appreciation for the value that not just the other person is bringing, but that you're going to be able to create together. And they're really intentional about how everything from how they structure their work, you know, they they believe that the other person, if they say they're going to do something that they actually are going to do it. So I don't need to be watching over your shoulder and micromanaging everything. And at the same time, I know I told you that I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. The fact I told you that means that I am absolutely going to you know, hold my word, I'm going to do those things. And it's going to come together and well sequenced, highly fulfilling, and amazingly productive experiences for everybody. Right, right. You have wonderful tools in the book. And I think you said something that was significant. It's like, well, go off and play. And you even talked about, you know, the kids playing in the trailer park. There is an assumption that you'll figure it out. You know, when you're together, you'll figure it out. And we have seen such dysfunctional teams sometimes. And they're obviously coming to light now with hybrid and virtual. But to your model, you have something called the Mashek Matrix, and it has four quadrants. Can I just say, let's observe yeah. for a minute how self-referential this title is of this metric for something or matrix for something that's about collaboration. So I'm just going to own that. I think that was perfectly appropriate. And it has four quadrants. If Can you talk about what what's you know behind the four quadrants? Because why you even came up with a matrix? Yeah, so the, you know, we know experientially that if you ask people, so tell me your true thoughts and feelings about collaboration, there are all sorts of positive words that come up. People say it's full of potential, it's fun, it's it's exciting, but there are also all of these negative words, like it's risky, it's onerous, it's more effort than it's worth. And so what I wanted to figure out is why is that? Why is it that some of us really freaking hate collaboration, at least some of the times? And why is it other times it's like glitter encrusted unicorns are flying through the sky? What is this really about? And so I started thinking about this as a close relationships researcher. There are two things at play. One, there's relationship quality. So do I like the other person? Second, are my outcomes dependent on your behaviors? So I mentioned I'm from the Midwest. I like a good farm metaphor. So whether I like it or not, is my wagon hitched to your horses? And what if your horses are actually really ill-mannered and they're going to run me off a cliff and I can't do anything about it? That is miserable. And that's what I talk about, this idea of being collaborate, where you're suffering the consequences of other people's actions or inactions, and you don't much like them. And so that that is really a horrible place to be. And if you want to get out of that, and maybe it's a very theoretical process, but if you want to get out of that, the wrong thing to do is just start going and doing trust falls or doing something that supposedly is going to improve your relationship quality. Because psychologically, it's really hard to just start liking somebody again when you're tethered to them in that fashion. Instead, what you need to do first is decrease some of those interdependencies. And we can talk about some of those, the dials that you can turn later to talk about that. And I should say, this is a clearly very visual model that if people would like to have it access to it, just let me know and I can send you the poster or whatever. Oh, sure, sure. Well, we're going to make sure they all go to your site, website and and so forth. Uh, So yes, in the matrix, then you try to show the balancing of the interdependence, the real collaboration, where there's potential and where there's also collaborate. 
So I love that. And the notion of the awareness of keeping it in balance, because like all of us go into one and stay there and have these blinders on. So you've mentioned the need for increasing the relationship quality, and you even come up with nine strategies to increase that kind of collaboration, the relationship quality. I'm going to ask you to choose like three or four of them. I think we want people to go read about all nine. But in the ones you choose, please talk about Bring the Donuts. Okay, so that'll be a special request for donuts. So the idea of bringing the donuts doesn't literally mean bring the donuts, unless you're collaborating with me, in which case, please do actually bring the donuts. I would appreciate that. But the idea is that all relationships, all of our social relationships exist on this continuum from being very exchange oriented to being very communal oriented. An exchange oriented relationship is this tit for tat notion. So for instance, I, you know, I need a ride across town. I give the bus driver $3 and he takes me across town. I mean, it's, it's, really clear, like this happens, then this happens. And that service in exchange for money or something else, it happens really close in time. So there's a proximal aspect there. In contrast, a communal relationship, I'm not tracking inputs and outputs. I'm doing things to make other people's worlds a little bit better. They're doing things that are nice for me, not because they have to and not because, oh gosh, I better do something nice for Deb. That way she owes me and I can call in the favor later. That's right. not what a communal relationship yes. is. About. It's, it's really about like, no, we, we're trying to contribute to the common good. We can do that in our workplaces by little things like bringing the donuts. Or I once had a, I was giving a, a keynote and a guy got really upset that I talked about bringing the donuts because I was advocating for unhealthy eating. So I right, should say course. like, if you'd like to bring the crudité plate, that's also perfectly allowed. You can also do things like offer to take the first crack at drafting the memo, being willing to share the shitty first draft. So, you know, like, hey, I, I'm taking this risk of putting it out there. Uh, you know, if you have somebody who keeps complaining that I'm having a tech issue right now and I keep posting about it on my personal Facebook page. And a friend texted last night. He said, you know what? Let me jump on a call with you Tuesday afternoon. I'm sure we can fix this together. He doesn't have to do that. He doesn't owe it to me, but he's like, look, I can help Deb. She's stuck here. So those are some of the little things we do to quote, bring the donuts, i.e. to nudge this communal norm in our workplaces. So glad you like that one. No, I love that. And your continuum idea. Because truly, I have to say in the workplace, that collection of chits, you know, well, he did this for me, I owe you one, you know, that kind of thing. And the other word was risk. If you take the risk to show, I'm jumping in, right? So if we all do it, it's going to be a much better place. Mitch, you have- got a question as a close relationship researcher. What is the difference that you're finding between me having a close relationship with you, Deb, and then me having a close relationship with, let's say, 10 other people all at the same time? What would I need to do to build that type of a relationship? So when we think about closeness as itself a continuum, 
you can think about to what extent do I see the world through the other person's eyes? To what extent are my perspectives aligned with theirs or influenced by them, that sort of thing. And it's not that you need all 10 of those relationships to be close. It's more that ideally you're in relationship with all of them, that you can see the sense of what I call we-ness. So the, it's mutuality. You can say this is actually one of the other things, Virginia, in that list of nine, finding ways of creating a sense of team. So whether it's we sink or swim as a team using when we're in the presentation, we did this when we're talking to our client, we did this, we did this, we did this, as opposed to I did this, Mitch did this, Jenny did this and separating, you know, trying to make super visible all of the individual distinctions. So we start to, when we're in relationship, it's both that we see other people are here and have consequences as a result of our behaviors that we care enough to be curious about what they value, what their needs are, and that we make decisions in our behaviors to put those needs and interests if not on par with our own, at least considering them and valuing them as worthy of our our caring consideration. Yeah. Yeah. How about the the talk about yourself? So we don't want a bunch of, you know, narcissistic jerks yammering on and on about themselves. There are enough of those in the world and especially in some workplaces. But what we do want is to give others a chance to actually see and know us So, you know, there's a lot of vocabulary out there of like, oh, I see you. You know what? That doesn't just happen by accident. It happens by being willing to share something about yourself. So one of the things we know that creates closeness is reciprocal exchange of information. So reciprocal disclosure and also escalating disclosure so that if I've known you for a year, I would hope that the kinds of things we feel comfortable talking about have become more, if not more personal, perhaps more risky or more intimate or more self-disclosing. And so the idea is that over time, that's, that's really how we create connection. So when I say talk about yourself, it includes things like we were, before we jumped on air, talking about my background, for instance. It means being able to look at somebody's environment and asking questions and saying, you know, what is that? What's that? Or like, oh, I see there's a pile of baseball bats behind you. Are you a baseball mom too? And striking up the conversation using those five minutes before the meeting has officially started to engage in the small chat, to turn the dang cameras on, to figure out, you know, yeah, you know, I'm maybe I'm sitting here sick today. It's okay to show up sick. Well, I don't really mean like go to work sick, but I've got a little stuffy nose and sorry, there are tissues everywhere. I'm learning something about you by experiencing your whole background right now. And it's it's just a way of letting the self be seen and known and valued and doing that in return to other people. That's how we form connection. Well, you have others. And I said, we can't get through all nine, but your checklists are incredible, letting the audience know. And of course, there are things like we've heard before, but we have to be reminded, set clear expectations on the team, right? Make agreements about if there's going to be a glitch in me getting something on the date we promised that we know within a certain amount of time. I feel this one, I want to like, shake everybody because we keep saying, yeah, yeah, of course we need to say have clear expectations. And yet we don't do it in part because I don't think we slow down enough to say, what are all the ways that we do carry around expectations? And we Mm -hmm. think just because we have expectations that other people have the same expectations, but it turns out we're all pretty crappy mind readers. And so you got to have the conversation. I mean, so just, okay, take like one example of a meeting 
There are so many expectations that go into a meeting, like who sets the agenda? When are they setting the agenda? Do other people get to have input on it? Really? At what point are you supposed to share that you have an idea for agenda? Is there an expectation that someone's going to ask you for that? Are you just supposed to know and, and add it? And what about when we show up in the Zoom room? Is there an expectation of cameras on? Is there an expectation of the most senior person talks first or the least senior person talks first? You know, like, so just on this one topic of meetings, I once listed out for myself, what are the expectations around it and came up with something like 30 or 40, I don't really remember, on that one topic alone. Does that mean we should sit down and talk through all of our expectations about everything in our work world all the time? Probably not, because you're not going to get anything else done. But if there's something that's truly important to you or to that person or to the project, absolutely have a conversation about it. Because again, none of us are mind readers. And what... It's like rule number one in any ex, in any relationship. It's if you want to dash people's expectations, have those expectations and don't tell them about it. It's such an easy way to get other people to disappoint you. It's amazing. It is. And I find, I don't know, Mitch and Deb, if you find this, that sometimes the people in the room running the meetings feel, well, they don't want to bring up expectations because that's a little embarrassing. Or, well, we're all adults here. We don't have to, we all know in our minds, right? And I just loved a meeting I went to recently and the CEO was going on Zoom off and off. And finally, someone in the group said, you know, Joe, could you share why you're sharing this story with us? (laughs) Because it was so off base, right? And it was such a beautiful question. And it brought him back to center. Yes, totally the expectations. Well, let's go into another. You talk about adjusting the dial. And this has to do with the other component of the matrix, interdependent. And you said something about you can alter the time together, the range of activities, and how work is structured and measured and rewarded in order to change the level of interdependence. That's fascinating. Could you give some examples of what you mean by that? Yes, I think I got to say one of the ones I love most there is that strength of influence piece, which you're exactly right. So it has to do with how do we structure work? How do we measure? How do we reward it? Work tends to be structured in one of three ways. So anyone who has ever been a part of a high school shared project or a college class, and evidently this happens a lot in MBA schools as well, the strategy seems to be divide and conquer. So we need to do a case study. Okay, you go figure out this part. I do this part. You do this part. And then we meet maybe an hour before class and put our pieces together. And we'll say we have a presentation that we worked on together, but you didn't. You just all went off, did your own thing, brought it together and like tried to Frankenstein it together, hoping it looks something that you can like, yeah, you're like, oh, people are going to think that this was really, truly a project. And that's not. So then there's also this idea of sequential workflows, which is what for people in our project management world, you know, this is more like a waterfall strategy where first we need the owner of, let's say, the conference to tell us what the theme is and to develop their list of ideal speakers. And then we pass that over to the marketing people to start writing copy. And then we're going to turn that over to the events people and they're going to do X, Y, and Z. And it's like there are all these baton handoffs. That's slightly more interdependent in the sense of I can't do my work until you hand off yours. But there's this other level that's even more intense, which is around the 
pooled notion where, you know, we're sitting around a table, we're not sure even what the tasks are going to be yet, much less who's going to do them or in what order. And we see something bubble up. And I'm like, you know what, I want to take that one. I have some ideas on it. Let me grab that and I'll report back to you. And it's more like ping pong balls moving around, really super interdependent, super fun if the people you're doing it with are competent and trustworthy and super stressful if you think Joe is going to just forget that he just volunteered to do this really important thing. And you look at him and he's not taking notes or anything. And it's like big surprise. It doesn't get done. Of course it didn't. Joe dropped the ball again. Gee, you know, that's just his type. And we're so mad at him, that sort of thing. So that has to do with how you structure work. Then, you know, here, here's like this big bugaboo one of how you measure and reward work. So, so many companies will say things like we value collaboration. In fact, it's one of our North stars. We've put it on our letterhead. If you walk into our office, somebody made a really pretty stencil across the whole wall that even says collaboration. And it also says excellence and innovation. That's great. And then you say, okay, so tell me about what work is actually valued and how do you know? Well, you look at who gets promoted, what the bonuses are based on. And often we say we like collaboration, but we're only really tracking and rewarding individual behaviors. And as any parent or pet owner knows, what gets rewarded gets repeated. So you can't say you value collaboration, but then reward the individual competitive behaviors because what you're going to get are more of the competitive behaviors. So yeah, that, that's one of those one of those examples where if you want to increase the interdependence, you can actually say well, say that you value collaboration, but then also find ways of rewarding and celebrating those group level accomplishments. So lower and higher the dial to make sure those are all aligned. Yeah. And it's, you know, sometimes you want to increase interdependence. For example, if you're trying to go from this ripe place where people have good relationships with each other, but they're not quite the the amplifier of interdependence hasn't been there yet. And so you want to bring them closer together. And other times, like when you're in that collaborate quadrant where People are feeling totally put upon and having to be with each other and they have really basement level relationship quality. Actually bringing them apart a little bit and decreasing interdependence is an important first step. It's the equivalent of, you know, a married couple on the verge of divorce. Often what a therapist is going to recommend they try is for one person to move to the basement for a little bit or to get separate apartments if they can afford it. So you find ways of separating people who are in bad relationships so that they have the headspace and the heart space to actually work on that relationship quality piece. Right, right. And so then that is why you talk about the dials. Uh, you may have to increase the frequency of something or decrease it. Or change up the activity itself. You know, gee, these lunches I'm having with that group really are stale now. Well, it's time to do something else. And it sort of brings us then to the whole virtual hybrid world we're in today and this whole term of collaboration. Now, the irony is, (laughs) I don't know how much CEOs, and I'm using managers, leaders, whatever level team leads looked at collaboration before, right? Whether they could say on a scale of one to 10, you know, how well does your team collaborate? But now they're thrust into the virtual and hybrid and sometimes in, sometimes out. 
what kinds of things now have you found have risen to the top of needing to be paid attention to with this virtual and hybrid? So I'll start with a, a story which is I feel that March 2020 was a little bit like 2 a.m. at the bar when all of a sudden the bartender is like, it's closing time, and they flip on those really horrible fluorescent lights, and you realize how totally disgusting this bar was all along, where there's like really sticky stuff all over the counter. There's like some dude in the corner passed out. That was there all along. Nothing has changed about the environment. Your ability to see the problems is what has changed. So March 2020 rolls around. Suddenly, we're all thrown into this remote world. And we start to see the dysfunction that was there all along. There were plenty of really amazing collaborations that just kept on chugging because the foundations were really solid and they were able to make the transition. For those of us who were in collaborations where our physical proximity had papered over some of the challenges where, you know, let's go back to our friend, Joe, who we've used in a couple examples. I really want to meet this guy. You know, imagine our friend, Joe, we used to work right next to him. So when he didn't do X, Y, and Z on the project, I could just go over and be like, seriously, Joe, I'm still waiting on this thing. And so we could nudge him thanks to physical proximity. That became harder to do for a little bit, at least until we figured out our interfaces and some processes around there. So here's the thing, and I don't think this is a hot take, but I'll say it and you can tell me if it's a hot take. The principles that underlie effective, incredible collaboration in person or virtual are exactly the same ones as for the virtual. So you need high relationship quality and you need to be careful about the interdependencies again that you're putting in place. How those principles are brought to life differs in in person versus, you know, more remote versus hybrid settings. So for instance, you know, where in person I might literally be able to bring the donuts If, you know, what does that look like in a virtual world? It's like, you know what? Let me send that calendar invite for you. Like you should not always have to be the one to send the calendar invite. If you have colleagues who are working on another coast, when you send them your availability, you send the availability in their time zone, not your time zone, because, you know, somebody has to do the time zone math. It's such a simple gesture that makes somebody else's world a little better. That doesn't take, I mean, it takes you maybe a few seconds and I certainly have screwed it up more times than I care to admit, but people notice it that you're, or, you know, like, you know what, let's meet this time. Oh, you know what? You said that you have to take your kids to dance class then. Never mind. I can open up my availability a little bit more to make this more available for you. So, you know, it looks different virtually. But the principle that undergirds it of being responsive to who the other person is, of caring enough to see them, of being willing to establish connection, those are identical. Totally agree. And I love the example you give because it does mean being mindful. And that's why I love your book, because you give us some labels, terms, language to use. So it's one thing for the team lead to say, well, I'm sorry you're having trouble with Bob. You know, you're just going to have to have a better relationship with him or you're just going to have to get to know him better. Well, if I use some of the approaches in your book, 
I will, I'll know I need to increase the interdependencies. Well, there are some ways to do that. You know, and I, I think this is such an important point because I don't think anyone is going around like, I don't want to help Bob with his relation. They just, they just don't know because this is not collaboration is not something that we're teaching. We don't teach it in college and we could talk about some of those data if you want. And when I, to get ready to write the book, I did a, some, a survey research of people in the United States who had, or who are employed full time and asked, so have you ever received any professional development and how to make this whole collaboration thing work well? And one third of people said, no, not at all. Something like, I think maybe 6% said a few minutes. And so I, I think that might be like reading the Dilbert cartoon in the coffee room or something yes, like that. Yes. But this is not something we're training. Why aren't we training it? Because it feels like a mysterious black box. We don't necessarily know how to unpack it. That's where I can come in and say, actually, we, we do know a lot about this. It doesn't have to be a mystery. So that I think a lot of people historically have not had the tools and the conversation available to them to make this better. Yes. Second to the last question. So let's say I have a hybrid company. I have 300 people. Oh, my gosh. I don't think we're collaborating enough or something's wrong and I call you in. What's your process? You know, how do you approach? What do you do? Yeah, like what what the heck is a collaboration consultant? So first and foremost, I am a social psychologist. So I believe that behavior is a function of the individuals and their environment. So if you want collaborative behavior, you ideally are hiring for collaborative people, but then the environment. So the relationships, the processes and the culture that you have in place are going to give rise to more or less of those behaviors that you want. So my dream clients are the ones who say, let's actually assess this. Let's do one of these diagnostics, figure out where the hot spots are so we can figure out how and where to intervene. And then once we've done the diagnostic and we see the hot spots, I love sitting down, I definitely with the executive, but ideally with the leadership team as well and saying, let's co-create. Let's look at these hot spots. Let's figure out what levers are available to you. Which ones do you have agency to throw? Which ones are affordable within your resource environment? Which ones are politically viable? Because for any of those layers, the relationships, the processes, the culture, there are absolutely things you can do. And my job is to put that menu in front of people and say, what are you most excited about? I am a big believer in you go for the early wins yes. to help build up the momentum. And because of that equation, you know that any thread you pull on one piece of it is going to start influencing and changing the landscape over on this other part. So it feels like a quagmire sometimes. But then if you just keep going back to the basics of, you know, we know these are humans that we're trying to influence their behavior and change their behavior. Let's start with the basics and build up from there. Great. Well, how can people find out about you? Get your book, these checklists and these roadmaps and these tactics. The easiest way I should say is collaborhate.com. And there you can sign up for the one simple tip newsletter to be delivered. It's every two weeks. So I try not, you know, my goal is to not be a spam bot. And then you can also connect with me there on all of my social platforms. I'm most active on LinkedIn. I'm there every single day and on TikTok, which still baffles me a little bit. And then the book, of course, is available everywhere. Great books are sold. That's wonderful. Mitch, 
Well, Deb, thank you so much. I've learned a lot and I've loved some of your metaphors and some of your expressions that were pretty crappy mind readers and that March 2020 was like turning on the lights in a bar at two o'clock in the morning. That just sums it all up for exactly what happened. Yes. So anyways, really looking forward to learning, to actually getting your book and reading the book. And please, for all of, all of our listeners, go to collaborate.com and check out Deb on LinkedIn and TikTok. Until then, we want to thank you, Deb. We want to thank you, Ginny. And we want to thank our listeners. Please share this episode with your friends, your family, and your colleagues. And we'll see you next time on our next episode of Team Anywhere. Anywhere.